welcome to Net Zero Future. I'm your host, Claudia, and today I had the chance to talk to Krista Anderson, who is the Director of Climate Science, Carbon Metrics, and Climate Change at the U.S. Office of the Worldwide Fund for Nature, WWF. WWF is a founding member of the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which is what we got to talk about today. I admit that when I first heard of science-based targets a couple years ago, I thought this was a generic description that we need our corporate targets to be science-based. Then I realized that people were talking about the Science-Based Targets Initiative, or SBTI, which is a large collaboration between different NGOs, including WWF, and that they are holding companies to very high standards when companies make a net zero claim. I'm sure you've come across several companies advertising that they will be net zero by 2040 or 2050. But what does it actually mean for a company to be net zero? And is net zero by 2050 early enough? What about supply chain emissions and carbon offsets? These are just some of the issues I discussed with Krista. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Krista Anderson, Climate Science Director at WWF, and a member of the Research and Technical Development Team at Science-Based Targets Initiative. Hi, Krista. Thanks so much for being here on Net Zero Future. Thanks so much for having me, Claudia. So you are Director of Climate Science, Carbon Metrics, and Climate Change at the Worldwide Fund for Nature, WWF US. So WWF is a founding member of the Science-Based Targets Initiative, which is a collaboration between WWF, the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, the United Nations Global Compact, and the World Resources Institute. Can you tell us a bit about the Science-Based Targets Initiative? That's exactly right. The Science-Based Targets Initiative is a global initiative enabling companies to set emission reduction mitigation targets that are in line with the Paris Agreement 1.5 degree future, or in some cases, well below two degrees. So among those partnerships of organizations, we've come up with the methods and guidance and tools, and also the validation to let companies be able to set robust targets and have them validated against being Paris aligned. So Luxembourg has a really big financial sector. It's also home to the Luxembourg Green Exchange. Goes without saying that sustainable finance is big here. And so sustainability claims of financial players rely on corporate sustainability or net zero claims of the companies they invest in. So I've been following really closely the rush of corporations making net zero claims. For you, what does it mean when a corporation makes a net zero claim? First of all, I couldn't agree more. It's been so quick and dramatic, the pace at which companies are making net zero claims. And as you would know well, there there are a whole bunch of different kinds of net zero claims that companies are making. Under the Science-Based Targets Initiative, just as of last fall, we developed a net zero standard so that companies can make a claim to net zero that's a commitment that's validated under the Science-Based Targets Initiative. So a net zero claim under science-based targets has a few important specifications. It means that a company is committing to really having net zero emissions sometime off in the future, usually around 2040 or 2050. And under science-based targets, if you make a net zero commitment, if you have a net zero validated target, it means you also have to have a near-term target, a target that's in the next five to 10 years. Because net zero is something that we expect for most companies to be far off in the future in 2040, 2050, like I said. So you need to have a near-term target. 
I would say there are sort of three main things. That first one is a near-term target. The second is you need to encompass all of your emissions. So for companies, this means all of the emissions that are directly associated with your production, with things that you own and operate, but also the emissions that are in your supply chain. And then the third thing is it really means you're going to reduce your own emissions. It's not just about buying offsets. Those are a few of the, think of the key characteristics of a net zero claim under science-based targets initiative to make a really robust claim from a company. Yeah, that does sound a lot more difficult than some of the claims we see flying around. So basically, can you tell us what would be, for example, a really weak net zero claim just by comparison? Yeah, certainly you could start with some of the obvious points that are true about any kind of target or goal setting. You really want a target that's time bound, that's specific about the starting year and the ending year and the starting point in terms of emissions and the ending point. And also one that's specific about what exactly, how are you going to get there? So a net zero target under science-based targets initiative is not a target of the kind that you sometimes see where a company might essentially have its emissions or do some small amount of reduction and then buy offsets to, as it were, offset the remaining emissions. That's not really a, a net zero target, certainly not under science-based targets initiative. Okay. So basically a really poor net zero claim word would be, well, yeah, we'll be net zero in 2050. I have no near-term target. And most of that net zero comes from carbon offsets, not really from emission reductions. And maybe they wouldn't even take into account kind of scope three or basically supply chain emissions that you said. So in, right now, there's nothing preventing company from making a net zero claim based only on their direct emissions in 2050 using a lot of carbon offsets. Yeah, that would be an extremely weak, weak target. And I, I would just say that I'm super surprised and, and heartened to see how quickly companies are making net zero commitments under the science-based targets initiative. So robust commitments to net zero, which do take care of all those issues, include the full scope of supply chain emissions, are time bound, and really are about reducing in supply chain, in scope emissions, not about buying offsets. So that's been really heartening to see that kind of shift happen as we've been able to put together a standard that makes clear what do you really need to do to have that net zero claim. That's good. I think we definitely always want to celebrate good news here on Net Zero Future because most of the time it's always bad news. I've checked the website of Science-Based Targets Initiative and I looked at all of the companies that have made commitments so far and I saw that 18 companies are based in Luxembourg and they have either made commitments or already set targets. For example, ArcelorMittal which is the second largest steel producer in the world and headquartered here in Luxembourg, their status is listed as having near-term commitments. And then, for example, the satellite and telecommunications company SES has both near-term and net-zero commitments. And then finally, Ferrero International has a validated near-term target of 1.5 degrees by 2030. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what this means. So having a near-term, long-term, or net zero commitment versus a validated target. Yeah, it can be a little bit complicated. So first, between the near-term and the long-term or net zero, we talked a little bit about that already. The near-term target or commitment is about something that's five to 10 years in the future for a company. It's really looking at the change that we need now for climate mitigation as you know well, globally, we're looking at needing about 50% reduction in emissions by 2030. So we need action now. And SBTI, Science-Based Targets Initiative, started with these near-term targets because of that. 
if a company has a near-term target, then if they choose to, they can also set a long-term or net zero target. This is a more long-term target, usually 2040, 2050. That's looking to get all the way to net zero for a company's emissions, while the near-term target is looking to set them on that path toward net zero. So that's the distinction in terms of the timeline for the near-term and the long-term. And, and again, you can't have a long-term target under Science-Based Targets Initiative unless you also have a near-term target. It's so important. It's like, you know, if I want to run a marathon next year, <laughs> I'm going to need it. I need, I'm going to need some milestones in order to get there. I'm not just going to next year wake up and run a marathon. I'm going to need a near-term target of running like five kilometers or 10 kilometers, so on like that. That's what the near-term target is like to the long-term net zero target. And then there's a distinction, too, between companies making a commitment and having a validated target. So that's a little bit about the process that companies undergo in order to join Science-Based Targets Initiative. The first step is to make a commitment. And the commitment means that a company's in the process. For some companies, they haven't had a lot of experience with even calculating their greenhouse gas emissions or maybe their supply chain greenhouse gas emissions. So they're doing that process of doing the accounting, figuring out what's the appropriate tool under Science-Based Targets to set their target and then submitting all of that information for validation. So if they're in the commitment stage, it means they're in that process. And that's a time-bound process. So companies only have a specific amount of time in order to get through their commitment. Once you see that a target is validated, that means that they finished the process. They've submitted all of their materials to Science-Based Targets Initiative, and it's been validated by a specific validation team. So that's the distinction there. The validated targets are those that have on all the way through the process, and now companies are at the stage of implementing on those targets. So that does sound a lot more involved. Do you think that companies are surprised by how much work is required in order to go from commitment to validated target? You know, I've been working in science-based targets for about two years now, and I, I will admit that even I was a little bit surprised how difficult the process can be or how challenging it can seem when you first get started there are a lot of steps involved. It's almost like think of, you know, when you're doing your taxes or any kind of corporate reporting that has to be done on an annual basis. It takes a little bit to get up to speed on exactly what's needed, especially when you're thinking of your supply chain emissions. How are you going to track down those sources? Who in the company is going to be responsible for gathering that information? That all has to get set up. And then typically, once that process is done, you know, of course, it's annual. You need to do your accounting and your reporting then it moves much more smoothly. But it, it certainly is uh, not, not insignificant to get yourself started. I know that some companies, they, they'll know their tier one suppliers, maybe their tier two suppliers, but I imagine it could be quite difficult coming up with the full supply chain or scope three emissions. How difficult is this? Or do you think there's certain sectors where this is particularly difficult? Yeah, you know, more and more companies are getting accustomed to this. It's, it's, well, it's not the standard in sort of national accounting. It's always been the standard for corporate accounting that you need to include your supply chain emissions. So that's something that's been around for a really long time. One of the, one of the provisions of the Science-Based Targets Initiative, though, is that when you set your near-term target, you need to include all of your scope one and your scope two emissions, all of your direct emissions or your indirect purchase of electricity. That all has to be included in your target. When it comes to those scope three emissions, in part because some of them are so difficult to track, as you mentioned, your target needs to cover 67% of your scope three emissions in a near-term target. And that's in recognition of the fact that some of this, this information can be difficult to track and really everybody's still getting up to speed on the best way to do it. So that's, that's what Science-Based Targets Initiative has done. 
I also know, though, we're looking forward to a future where we know that we have to get better at understanding these things and tracking these supply chain emissions. So, for example, companies who are setting net zero targets, the net zero target commitment includes 90% of scope three. So really, you, a company needs to be including essentially all of the traceable scope three for a net zero, that long-term target, thinking that as we go towards the future, that kind of tracking and monitoring will become more and more feasible. And then... How do carbon offsets figure into this? Can you just say, well, half of my net zero in the future will come from carbon offsets? No. Essentially, uh, offsets play almost no role in science-based targets. It's really the the purpose of science-based targets initiative is that companies are setting a target to reduce their own, you know, within their scopes, within their inventory, within their supply chain emissions. The only place where offsets do play a role is for a net zero target. When you get down to the very end, you know, in the final year, when you want to claim net zero, many companies will have some residual emissions, some small amount of emissions that really just cannot be totally eliminated, especially in hard to reduce sectors, especially in places where we don't have yet very good alternatives. And so we expect in a net zero commitment that sort of something around notionally the final 10% of a company's emissions would be remaining or residual and would need to be neutralized or offset in some way. But that's a very small share and it's off into the future towards the end of a net zero process. But the net zero target and the near-term targets are completely focused on reduction of emissions that are within a company's own boundary. So no offsets are involved there. And that's a really important distinction. And really what we need in order to do the mitigation to get to 1.5 degrees. That's heartening, as you say. So it definitely puts the onus on companies to reduce their own emissions and not really kind of take the easy way out by buying offsets. Does the same apply, I guess, to renewable energy certificates? So could you say that your scope two emissions, which typically for most companies would be their electricity consumption, can they claim, well, we bought renewable energy certificates, the renewable power is being produced elsewhere, but we're claiming it. Is that possible? Science-based targets initiative, in terms of the accounting rules, because science-based targets is about how you set your target. So when a company comes into target setting, they should have already done the accounting of their current emissions profile. And we ask companies to do that accounting following the standard of the greenhouse gas protocol. Greenhouse Gas Protocol has been around for decades, setting the standard on how companies should do their counting. So the current Greenhouse Gas Protocol does allow for purchase of racks under scope two. And so that's a standard that's followed through inside Space Targets Initiative. And we'll continue to follow Greenhouse Gas Protocol as they make any updates or revisions in terms of those rules. Okay, that's very clear. So I read recently that you have now come up with guidance for companies with significant Flag emissions, F-L-A-G. What are flag emissions? Yeah, this is one I'm really excited about, as you mentioned, because I'm managing this work. FLAG stands for forest, land, and agriculture. For those who might work in this space, the other term that's often used for it is AFOLU, agriculture, forestry, and other land use. So under science-based targets, in general, over time, we've been developing target pathways for specific sectors. Of course, we have sort of the global target pathway, but we know that when we think about what mitigation needs to happen for a future 1.5 or well below 2 degree world, 
different sectors have different roles to play and different rates of mitigation that are expected based on all of the climate modeling that's been done over decades. So we follow the latest science and establish new methods for different sectors as we're able to. The last couple of years, we've been working on developing for the first time pathways and guidance for companies that have emissions related to forests, land, and agriculture. We hadn't had this before, and this bucket of emissions from broadly the land sector, as you know, makes up 22% of global emissions. So it's an important share that really deserves a specific pathway to cover what is the expected mitigation for this sector and what's possible by 2020, 2030, 2040, and beyond. That's what we're doing in FLAG, and this will allow companies who have emissions, think of grocers who are uh, purchasing and selling food or commodity traders, or of course, farmers, agricultural producers themselves, and also those working in forestry, think of emissions related to harvesting trees, you know, about half of a tree is carbon, and also of course, sequestering carbon in trees, sequestering carbon in agricultural soils, and then all of the emissions also on the agriculture side from fertilizer use, methane from livestock, and so on and so forth. So we're accounting for all of those sources and for the many companies who have those kinds of emissions will now be able to set targets specific to that sector. Well, that sounds like a really difficult sector to get everything right, get the, the metrics, the measuring, the monitoring right. I know that for agriculture, it's really difficult because uh, you have lots of emissions that are not CO2. So you have methane, nitrous oxide, and a lot of it just depends on how, what kind of management practices are implemented at the farm level. So do corporations actually have any control over that? So if I were, for example, a company that produces chocolate, getting my cocoa, my ingredients from all over the world, can I control how farmers manage their fields? It's a great question. And what we're seeing, well, first of all, to your to your point, yeah, it is quite difficult. This is a place where emissions are super decentralized. As you say, each, each farm, each piece of land has its own emissions profile and potentially sequestration as well. So it's not even just emissions, it's trying to understand a flux and something that initially our carbon accounting framework certainly weren't built for. So at the same time as science-based targets is taking on flag on the target setting side, the greenhouse gas protocol on the sort of how do you count up these emissions is writing new guidance for the land sector, for all land sector emissions and removals. This will be in order to help companies who are now trying to tackle all these emissions in a way that you're right, they haven't always in the past because it's more difficult to track down. So that's the first step is kind of getting the emissions inventory, of course, and doing the target setting. And then as, as you asked about what kind of implementation options are available what we've seen from the companies who are the first movers who are really in the front of the pack is that they are experimenting with methods of supporting farmers to update or change practices so that they can have lower emissions and enhance carbon sequestration. It's certainly something new and that we're still working, working out how all of that is going to happen. But I've been heartened to see that companies are stepping forward and seeing that it is something that they're going to have to deal with as part of their, as part of their inventory. So in the flag sector, flag emissions, this would be pretty much the only place where you do look at carbon offsets a lot. So carbon sequestration of forests, of agriculture. Is that right? Yes, still there are no offsets, but yes, removals are included. So imagine a company who in their supply chain is sourcing from a piece of land that's both 
reducing emissions and also potentially sequestering maybe soil carbon or else carbon in trees, those removals, those carbon removals can be used towards their target. But, and this is a bit technical, but I think it's important that those removals, they're not offsets because they're removals from within the company's supply chain, within their inventory boundary. And also because we don't want companies to, um, or anyone to be able to use those as an offset for, for example, the kinds of energy or industrial mitigation that we need to be done. Those removals can only be used toward a land target. So that's to say that when companies set a target for flag, for forest, land, and agriculture, that target has to be kept separate. Sort of all of the land sector emissions and removals counted against a land sector target, apart from all of the fossil fuel emissions, which have a separate target for mitigation. And when it comes to measuring these emissions and these, well, in a sense, the net flux of carbon removal, carbon emissions from the land or even methane emissions, nitrous oxide emissions, are companies thinking of using, for example, satellite technology or drones to get a handle on these emissions or to track them remotely? Yes, we've seen a bunch of different approaches in those first movers. So certainly the historical approach for companies who are getting initial handle on this is to use emissions factors. And then we've been seeing more and more companies moving towards direct measurements for land that they either source from or directly own or manage. And now, just in the last couple of years, as we've been working from FLAG, more and more I'm talking to companies exactly as you say, who are using remotely sensed data to be able to, to try to get this time series and start tracking what's happening on the land that they source from so that they can look at these emissions and removals. I would say that's been, it's been so wonderful to see that advancement and experimentation and where we're going to see kind of how we're going to move forward a little bit more is in this new guidance from the greenhouse gas protocol. They're going to be pilot testing over the coming six months. What are the different approaches that are available now for companies to do this kind of tracking? And what should the rules of the road be to make sure that we're getting the most robust data possible? And of course, also not overburdening anyone in the process in terms of the level of data that's required to be able to do accounting or set a target. So I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction now. Imagine I have a company. Does it make business sense for me to join SBTI and set a target for my company? Gosh, well, I could just say that I have been so, as I said, I've been in science-based targets for a couple of years now, and I have been so impressed and surprised, I can say, by how quickly Science-Based Targets Initiative has grown. I think at the time I started, it was maybe a thousand companies and we're well over 3,000 now. So that indicates to me that companies are seeing it as very much worth their while. This is, of course, a voluntary initiative. Nobody is required to sign up. And yet we're getting um, really, really high levels of interest. That's for the near-term targets and also for the net zero targets, which just launched at the end of last year. And more than 1,000 companies have made commitments. So it's just been incredible to see how fast that's growing. And I take that as an indication that it's worth it for companies. Certainly in terms of results, what we've seen is that companies who have got their targets from our latest progress report are reducing emissions faster than the average. And the total science-based targets now covers, uh, I think, about a third of global market capitalization. So it's just, it's remarkable how quickly it's grown. Wow, that's really impressive. And I guess also speaks to the value you guys provide so that if I want to set a target for my company, 
I will actually get the support from science-based targets to go about that. Because I think, um, like you said, it is something that while companies have been keeping better track of their emissions, certainly direct emissions, it's still new. And I can imagine that it could be more difficult for companies in certain sectors or for smaller companies to do that. And then you would provide the support. Yeah, I mean, certainly part of the genesis of science-based targets was companies wanting to make commitments or having made commitments, but it being hard to compare them or hard to understand what kind of mitigation commitment has been made. And that was sort of the impetus for starting science-based targets so that companies would have a place to be able to go and say, well, here, given your profile of emissions, is the right target that you need to get to to be doing your part globally to mitigating climate change. And that was something that was really important. I would note, I think this is one that comes up a lot and is important for small businesses. It's, it's a, it can be more difficult to do the accounting. They don't have as many resources. We see this in businesses, but also, of course, in jurisdictions and countries and so on and so forth. So for science-based targets initiative, the approach that we've taken is that we have a separate sort of recommendation and set of guidance for small and medium enterprises, which is much more simplified just to make it a lot more straightforward for smaller organizations that are probably new to accounting and target setting to be able to do that pretty expeditiously. So I wanted to ask now how SBTI fits within the overall global framework of trying to reduce emissions. I know that there are a lot of different initiatives and frameworks out there. Some of the ones I've come across include the Greenhouse Gas Protocol, which you already mentioned, PACTA or the Paris Agreement Capital Transition Assessment Tool of the Two Degrees Investing Initiative, which is geared more towards financial markets. Then there's also the Net Zero Banking Alliance of UNEP Finance Initiative, the TCFD or Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures set up by the Financial Stability Board. So I was wondering how SBTI fits in with these different things, whether they are competing or they're actually dealing with different parts of the global market or the global effort to mitigate climate change? Yeah, man, it certainly is. It's been, there's been such growth and it is definitely complex, all of the initiatives that are, that are going on. Science-based targets initiative, their a real role is to say, okay, a company knows their accounting and now we are going to provide the tools to set the target. Where do you need to get to in the next five or 10 years? And then in the timeline for net zero, if so desired. And that's really our niche. As I mentioned, for Greenhouse Gas Protocol, they've been around much longer. And, and really, we built on, on that experience to say Greenhouse Gas Protocol is giving the rules of the road, very standardized for companies about how they should do their accounting. How do you add up? What are your total emissions? Once they do that, they can come to Science-Based Targets Initiative and set a target. And then you've mentioned several, especially from the finance sector, there's some really nice initiatives going on which often do things in addition to or apart from target setting. So for TCFD, of course, there's really nice consideration of risks and accounting for climate risks. Under Science-Based Targets Initiative, we do have specific guidance, both for near-term targets and for net zero for the finance sector. And we've been working on expanding that and fleshing it out even further, developing guidance for additional asset classes in the last couple of years. And so what our role is for finance is similar to other organizations. We really say, here's what the mitigation pathway looks like for companies who are in the finance sector and under different kinds of asset classes, but certainly complemented by, and I would say in, to a surprising degree, sharing resources with and being in partnership with many of these other initiatives. 
that have different takes or different roles in terms of climate mitigation, climate adaptation and resilience. So if I'm a financial player, of course, I want to reduce my own scope one and two emissions, but those would be in a sense really tiny compared to my indirect emissions, which is basically the emissions of the companies I'm, I invest in. And so I guess if I join SPTI as a financial player, an asset manager or an investment company, you would help set the targets for the company itself, but then also help me then engage with the companies I invest in so that in a sense, these companies would also be pushed or incentivized to have their own net zero targets. Can you, do you know how this works if, if I'm a financial player and want to do SBTI? Exactly. So as you say, for finance, it can be a little bit tricky because the main emissions are about those companies or, or assets that they've invested in. And so there are three main approaches that we have under the finance institutions guidance for science-based targets. And maybe describing the most popular ones at a very high level, one is a portfolio approach. So it's saying, okay, you're going to cover some share of your portfolio of emissions, right? So the investment portfolio. And then another approach, as you mentioned, is about saying, okay, we're going to have actually the companies that are within the portfolio, some share of them or some given sectors of them covering some assets, set their own science-based targets so that overall your portfolio is well covered by science-based targets, if that's the appropriate way. And then there's also a temperature rating approach to say, essentially, if you've got targets already embedded, what temperature are those targets aligned with? Are they aligned with what science-based targets requires, which is 1.5 degrees at this time and previously well below two? So you have a, a really good overview of what all the different sectors need to do, how much effort they need to put in. I think, you know, the average person doesn't really know for which sectors it is more or less difficult to mitigate and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Can you give us sort of a broad overview of which parts of the economy will be mitigating very quickly and which other parts of the economy does it take longer because the technology is not yet there? Yeah, I think the the... Classic and easiest example to think about is for all of our energy production, we know we have technology and, and you know well and your listeners know well to go to renewable energy sources. So that's something where we need to implement the solutions and we can do that now. For other sectors, we don't yet, we maybe know the solutions, but they're not yet very widespread. So for example, a classic example, of course, is aviation. We don't have great ways to fly planes with renewable resources at this time. And so we do have aviation guidance under flag and the kinds of mitigation approaches that are available for aviation at this time are things like adding renewable fuel into their fuel mix and doing other kinds of efficiency gains. But that's not getting to net zero as quickly as maybe, say, the energy sector, which can reduce invest in renewable energy. If I were to talk about the sector that I work in, as I mentioned, in the land sector for forest, land, and agriculture, we expect that for those CO2-related emissions, those can be reduced in shorter order and especially related to stopping deforestation, stopping land use change, where we have a lot of the emissions. About half of the emissions in the land sector are still from deforestation. We know exactly how to stop that, um, although it can be challenging. 
But in the agricultural side, as you mentioned, we've got methane emissions, we've got nitrous oxide emissions, and we don't expect those to reduce as quickly. We also don't expect them to get to zero, of course, because we need to continue to feed a growing population. And how do you include anywhere a recognition of social impacts of these companies? Is this anywhere a requirement or that's outside of the scope of what SBTI does? SBTI is definitely focused on, you know, what is the greenhouse gas accounting? What is the emissions target? But we've also embedded in our guidance, for example, in the forest, land and agriculture guidance that I work on, we've embedded requirements that companies take account of the appropriate social and environmental and nature-based risks and considerations that are really important anytime you're looking, thinking about mitigation in the land space, recognizing the rights of landholders, making sure that you're adequately dealing with deforestation, addressing free prior and informed consent, all of those kinds of things. It's not our it's not our place to set targets for those. We're really about targets for greenhouse gas emissions, but certainly that's something that's very important. You can't have uh, your mitigation and isolation from all of the social and other environmental issues. Yeah, I was just going to follow up and say, I guess there's other environmental impacts as well. Sometimes you do have trade-offs. Is this something that you struggled with in the flag sector or elsewhere where you have these sort of known trade-offs? Yeah, this is something that's super important. And so when it comes to modeling, what are the mitigation actions that could be implemented? Those kinds of trade-offs are considered insofar as all of our global climate models have looked at what kinds of actions are feasible and at what scale without causing undue negative trade-offs. And then what we do in Science-Based Targets Initiative is say, we're here to say what is the appropriate target, leave it open to a company to figure out what is the best mitigation pathway to get there. Definitely, as you say, considering all of those important environmental and social issues, absolutely, but without prescribing them because they're different for each company. So we always like to end on a positive note here on Net Zero Future. Can you tell us what gives you hope for the future with all of your experience here at SBTI and an engagement you've had with different companies across the world? <laughs> I'm glad you end on a positive note. I also feel very negative sometimes, but I would say two things that, that leave me feeling good. One, as I've said already, just the way that Science-Based Targets and show has grown so quickly, I can be a bit of a pessimist. And so I've been really surprised and impressed how quickly it's grown. And it's a voluntary initiative. So it means that we do have actors who are willing to do their part, even without being forced to. And that's really heartening. And the other, the other thing is that I've been lucky to work with so many smart and talented people. We have really excellent people who are working on net zero and all the mitigation that we need in the near term. I feel very grateful that there are so many wise people working in this space, and it gives me hope that we'll be able to come to solutions that are best for the climate, best for people and for nature. Well, thank you, Krista, so much for being here with us on Net Zero Future. Thank you so much, Claudia. Thanks for listening to the Net Zero Future podcast on Lux Unplugged. Please share this podcast with friends and family and leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. Also, please don't forget to visit our website, luxunplugged.com. We welcome your feedback and ideas for new episodes. See you next time.